everyone, welcome back to Dear and Apologetic. Super pumped to join us today. Today I have Dr. Kurt Jarris. He's the executive director and chairman of the board of directors and founders of Defenders Media. Uh, he has a PhD from the University of Aberdeen. We're talking about how Christians can uh, misquote Bar Airmen, so to speak. So Kurt, welcome. How are you doing today? Good, good. Doing well. It's uh, cold here in Chicago. Uh, I went into my car and it said negative two. Uh, so kind of chilly around these parts. <laughs> I moved down to Virginia yesterday, expecting the weather to get warmer, and it got colder um, from Pennsylvania. Yeah. So I, was I mean, really I would avoid the I ninety five. Yeah, I was a little scared. Luckily, I was on eighty one. So luckily, like not the one that was like infamous on the news right now. That's right. Um, yeah, we're here. So yeah, today we're gonna be talking about um, your recent video series. Been working on the with the Veracity Hill YouTube channel on like Bart Ehrman and his work and stuff. So before we get into that, Kurt, you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a theologian. Uh, I was born and raised in the Christian church. I grew up going to church every Sunday and um, I was the kid that paid attention in Sunday school. So I had all the answers. And I, <clears throat> I even remember, I mean, when I say I had all the answers, it wasn't like, um, and I, I don't mean this to boast, but just to talk about sort of my interest in the Bible, I knew what the answer was. It wasn't just like Jesus or God, you know, those stock kid answers. Uh, so I, I paid attention. And so when I was in high school, I really began to ask the deep questions of life. Uh, I went through the public school system. So it was uh, uh, pros and cons to that. One of the, the pros that I found was the religious diversity, because in high school, as I was asking the deep questions of life, which many people do a few years later in college, I was exposed and was able to have conversations with many non-believers. Uh, from a variety of religious backgrounds or agnostic and atheists. And so that got me on a on a path to explore more. I never gave up my Christian faith. Um, so I continued to explore apologetics works. Uh, one of the books that I had read was The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And so that was a very meaningful book to me. And uh, I went on to do my undergrad at Biola University and I studied philosophy and I have graduate degrees in systematic theology, apologetics, and then I finished my PhD in 2020 uh, with a degree in theology from the University of Aberdeen. So I've, I've got this strong interest in apologetics and theology. And, uh, you know, this, this Ehrman series came along because uh, I had just sort of relaunched Veracity Hill, but now as more than a podcast. And I wanted to start off with uh, exploring one of the most infamous persons in apologetics, Bart Ehrman, right? He's the villain. He's painted as the villain uh, for many, you know, uh, conversations that people have on apologetics and, and the New Testament. So, uh, if it's okay, I'd be happy to just jump right into uh, the the series. As yeah. I was as I was uh, reading, I decided to read "Misquoting Jesus," which is arguably the most popular book Ehrman has written, New York Times bestseller, and uh, I began to read it you know, thoroughly, not just like, hey, let me find this passage, right? That that sometimes happens where people are just, for research purposes, they're trying to sift through and they might find a passage here or there. But I read it thoroughly and I realized, well, wait a second, a lot of what I had read about Ehrman written by other people or had heard about Ehrman regarding this book was not true. So, uh, so that got me thinking, hey, we really need to have a corrective here uh, for those that are interested in apologetics, especially online, you know, we're familiar with the term straw man. When you straw man someone, you sort of put up this, you know, uh, picture or depiction of uh, something that looks like the person, 
but it's not really their views. Now, as sort of what sort of happened in the apologetics world online is this a term, I don't know who used the term first, but to steal man someone, to present the best form, the strongest form of the arguments. And so that's what we really should do as Christians is present the steel man version. And uh, we should be honest. We have a moral obligation to accurately depict the views of our opponents. Now, I think that Bart Ehrman has a number of views that are mistaken, inaccurate, from philosophical views to views about the New Testament. <clears throat> As it pertains to misquoting Jesus, though, there's actually not a lot to disagree with until the, a few later chapters where he gives his, his own interpretation on some passages and some things that happened. Um, but it's it's fascinating that it's a book that Dan Wallace and Craig Blomberg, two conservative, well, it depends on where you are on the spectrum, but you might call them conservative. Uh, the conservatives would call Blomberg conservative. They, they sort of speak well of the book. Uh, it's a good introduction for people who are just learning what uh, textual criticism is. It's written for a popular audience. And so there's not too much that would really pull someone astray from the faith. And that's if you're reading the book carefully. Now, there are some people who may read the book and for whatever reason, they'll miss sections of Ehrman's book, uh, which talks about the conservative nature of the transmission process, which talks about the qualifications to the types of uh, errors that are in the that take place in the manuscripts. So, um, yeah, so that's unfortunate when it happens. And so then the question just as well, how much is, is Ehrman at fault for what readers are not fully comprehending? At any rate, so that's sort of, you know, a, a long answer to my background and my interests uh, and uh, where this, this series came from. Yeah, that's super helpful. And it's great for like framing the context of talking about like Bart Ehrman and his work and what he did. So could you talk a little bit about like his rise to prominence? Uh, because this is something for me, like I, I didn't really like witness this rise. Um, just like, oh, wow, there's this like popular, like non-Christian, like writer on the New Testament. So how did he come to like prominence with like books like Misquoting Jesus? Yeah, you know, he's a New Testament scholar at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And um you know, he's held that position for a long time. He's published works prior to his, his rise to prominence. What really uh, brought him stardom, if you will, and he, he calls it luck. He uses the term luck, was he was asked to come on to NPR radio for an interview uh, back in the 2000s. And uh, I, I think it was 2005, if I remember, might, might be 06. Uh, and so he did this interview. And it went great. Okay. What was really interesting was then he got asked by a different show to also come on that same week. And it's extremely rare to be on NPR radio as a guest two times in the same week. So uh, there, were, there was, a, I think it was the Washington Post published an article about this mishap. And so this, this article comes out and... Uh, it gets the attention of the Daily Show, John Stewart, right, and his staff, and so the you know very popular uh, comedy news show about politics uh, on on cable TV back in the two thousands. The Daily Show, eventually Stephen Colbert took it over uh, before Colbert took over the uh, late night stuff at CBS. So he goes on the Daily Show, and that's that's sort of the firework, right? You, you're getting millions of views, 
and the book sales go off the charts. And this is when Amazon was just selling books. So, I mean, boom, it's like, it was sort of um, uh, a great recipe for uh, accidental success, if you will. And really, I think that's what brought Ehrman a sort of pop level stardom. He was, he was well known as being a rigorous academic, studied under Bruce Metzger, but you know, having a good or great reputation in scholarships, one thing, to reach the average Joes on the street, you know, the, the, lay, the laymen Muslims who are studying your books because it helps them against the conservative Christianity, you know, uh, that's a whole nother thing. And uh, so, yeah, that's sort of, I think, what gave his rise to prominence. And again, it's a term he used in conversation with me that it was, it was luck um that that made this happen that's super cool so i'd be curious to then talk about like airmen and misquoting jesus because a lot of times like is evangelicals are like well, looking at this like oh we gotta like take this book down we gotta show like why it's wrong or something like that so how like in your opinion like how do christians straw man like airmen in this book like what what don't they understand yeah good good so there are a number of passages in misquoting jesus uh which uh, sometimes they're rhetorical. Uh, I, I've interpreted Ehrman here as being rhetorical in some cases, and I back the, in the video series. I back that up, uh, my interpretation of that. that. That, for example, when he's asking a question, there are a number of ways we can interpret it. Is he making a radical claim about his own beliefs, or is he wanting the the reader to simply ponder these questions? Right. Those are two different ways of interpreting how an author might use a question. And so sometimes I think these scholars have interpreted him to be holding to this radical view when, in fact, we have evidence in many cases, both in writing and in public talks, that he does not hold to those views. So I think it's more appropriate to interpret those questions as rhetorical, that he wants the reader just to be thinking about these things. There are other cases where Ehrman will make um, you can, you can sense his enthusiasm. Uh, I'm happy to read a, read a passage here because it's just, this is one of the most famous passages that some Christian scholars have drawn from and they don't give broader context. So we'll, we'll get into where they straw man him here. And so it's right in the introduction. So it's right away. He talks about, uh, his experience going through his, his academic work. And, and basically his experience in learning about uh, textual criticism. He says, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or the copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later. And, all these, cop and these copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. As we will see later in this book, these copies differ from one another in so many places, we don't even know how many differences there are, right? So <clears throat> you get this grave sense like, oh my gosh, we're so far removed from the originals that we can't know what the originals actually said. <clears throat> That's to, to take Ehrman at that uh, and draw that conclusion would be inaccurate. It would be a hasty conclusion that someone's coming to. In fact, in the very next paragraph, he qualifies that a lot of these errors are minuscule and are meaningless, no more than they can demonstrate that, that we can't spell accurately, you know, and, and they couldn't either. And we've got spell check and we still misspell words, right? Or that there may have been slips of the pen. 
right? A lot of these, these errors that happen in the transmission process, these variants, these are 99% of the cases, right? But sadly, some apologists and scholars do not credit Ehrman with making these important nuances, even though he does. He does. Now, maybe he doesn't do it the way that apologists would want to have it done, but you need to give Ehrman credit where credit's due. And I think in some cases it's just so obvious. So one example of someone who strawmans, and it's really, it's the most egregious. Uh, in the series, I document a number of cases and persons that do this. The most egregious case is Timothy Paul Jones's work, Misquoting Truth, where he is explicit. He, he asserts explicitly that Ehrman does not nuance or talk about the importance of these differences. And that's explicit language. And that is, frankly, it's just false. It's wrong. And, uh, you know, we Christians should do better to communicate what our opponents hold. And so I really think that, you know, this book, Misquoting Truth by Timothy Paul Jones, really needs revision and uh, some sort of statement to come out saying that, you know, he did he was not careful in reading Ehrman or whatever it was that led him to write what he wrote. So, yeah, there are other cases. I'm happy to go into those as well. And sometimes apologists are almost set up for it, too, uh, like Pete with with Peter Williams. Um, and that happened in a Crossway interview where the interviewer just gave him a select quote from Ehrman. And, um, you know, to Williams's credit, he, I think, tried the best he could, but still sort of attacked a straw man. I mean, plain and simple, it's not Ehrman's view. Uh, so, yeah, it happens, sadly. And uh, we should just try our best to charitably understand people. I think that should be our first disposition. We want to have clear communication. And so uh, we want to interpret with integrity. That's really um, interesting, like how Christians can often like misunderstand like what Ehrman's saying. So I'm just curious then, Kurt, like why do you think this happens? And like, how do we like prevent like straw manning? Because obviously like no one wants to like straw man the other person. Uh, so like, what do you have to say here about this? Yeah, good. Uh, you know, in my series, I don't really get into the psychology of, of why this happens. Mm -hmm. uh, I try not to ascribe motive to people uh, because that, that that's a lot harder to prove in terms of, you know, what evidence there is to demonstrate a person's motive in their academic work. Uh, and there's it's far more speculative. So I think what does happen sometimes, I'll just speak in general, more than any particular person did this because of this. In general, we can view people who write books against Christianity as villains, right? They are the, they are the enemy. And uh, I think it's important for us to realize that there are, there are people that are lost and they are not the enemy. It's like, uh, you might think of it, uh, I would think of it as, as sort of um, friendly fire, right? Jesus loves these people. Jesus wants these people to repent and to join the kingdom. These are people that we should have, I think, um, uh, sympathy or empathy uh, for. And we should try our best to be winsome, I would argue. That's a lot of my methodology is to be winsome toward people, unless there's a, a lot of uh, you know, cases where you can tell that people within the church, 
right? I think Paul talks about the importance of holding ourselves to a higher standard, right? But with people who are not in the church, what are we supposed to do with those people? We'll treat them like Gentiles. Well, how would we treat Gentiles, right? Paul talks about being all things to all men so that he might win some. So I try my best not to view people who write against Orthodox Christianity as villains because I want them to come to Jesus. And if you say, hey, you you hate Jesus and uh, you're going to hell, I mean, that's not going to bring them into the kingdom. That's just going to push them further away. So that's my methodology. I understand some people throw seed differently. And, and, and in some cases, maybe when people have a close personal relationship, very close, they can say, hey, look, you are, they can speak those, uh, those truths in some cases. But I think that's, you know, very contingent on the circumstances. So some apologists speaking generally here want to paint people as a villain. Why? Because you need to have a hero in the story. And, uh, but, but sadly in this case, even when they paint Ermin as the villain, they, they paint a straw man. So they don't even paint an accurate version of the villain. Uh, so even if just take it for granted, like I'll grant this, let's say he is the villain because of his views elsewhere. That still doesn't mean we can just totally botch what he says in misquoting Jesus. And, and in fact, when we accurately represent his views, I found in my engagement with his, some of his followers, a sense of gratitude. Uh, so I've been commenting at Ehrman's website. He's been grateful enough to share these videos and uh, I've been commenting and a number of his followers are saying, Hey, you know, this is how I, I interpreted the text. Thank you so much for, you know, I'm, I'm not a believer anymore. I, I mean, I, I've dealt with a host of people over at his site and, but a lot of them have, have had this sense of gratitude for someone who, even though they know I don't agree with Ehrman on Jesus as the Messiah or other views, you know, out there in, in New Testament scholarship, they are grateful that I've accurately presented his, his position here. So, yeah, that's sort of a long answer to your question, but feel free to follow up. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because a lot of times, like, when you're in, like, these, like, theist, atheist, Christian atheist dialogues, a lot of times you feel like you need to, like, defend all your points and go get out, go get the bad guys on the other side and show them that they're just completely wrong. But, like, one of the things I found really helpful in kind of disarming that is just trying to remember, like, what we have in common. So mm. I think if you talk to, like, airmen or maybe, like, really, like, any atheist, agnostic, like, most people are just interested in truth. So if we figure out that like, hey, this book that is like criticizing like my religious beliefs, like it's not just like, oh, I want to like be mean to the Christian. Just hopefully more of like, I think they're wrong and here's why. And we should just try to get closer to truth together. And I think that's really helpful when looking at this is just like trying to find that like common ground of the joint pursuit of truth. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And instead, what happens sometimes is um, it's a sense of tribalism, right? It's like an us versus them. You see this a lot in politics, right? our side, their side. And sometimes you got to realize, hey, our side gets it wrong sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's important mm -hmm. to recognize those ways. And we can even, I mean, it's really sad, Zach, that even in, in Christian circles, right, between denominations, churches, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism, you see this tribalism. You see people who may even question people's authentic Christian faith. They'll, they'll say something like, supposedly Christian theologian or supposedly Christian New Testament scholar. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, wh why are we throwing around these accusations, these insults, you know, questioning people's own faith within our own circles? You know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, man, we, there, there's so much work to be done to reach 
non-believers. And like you said, let's just aim for truth. Let's let's present the arguments. Uh, let's look into the facts. Let's look at our assumptions, our philosophical assumptions, and work together on this. It's sort of a collective effort. And there are going to be people that disagree with us, and that's okay. But we can still have fellowship with Christians, and we can still treat the Gentile as a Gentile. We don't have to hold them to a, a Christian standard. Uh, the sooner I tell people, the sooner, especially here in the States, I say, the sooner you realize we're living in Rome or we're living in Babylon, the sooner we can have a more effective way at reaching the lost. There are a lot of people, especially the older generation, who are dissatisfied with the way the culture has gone and they try to salvage it, right? The culture wars. And they're, they're living in a bygone era. It's gone. It's lost. The sooner you get over it, the better. So we need to have good strategies about how we're reaching non-believers instead of just shunning them because that doesn't work in a society that we live in. Hmm. That's super helpful. And I appreciate that. And it's really, really helpful to emphasize, like just trying to like come together and find that common ground and realizing like not everyone that disagrees with you on like every little point is just totally irrational. So that's really helpful. So one of the things that you hinted at a little bit earlier, Kurt, is this idea of like uh, in this opening passage of like Bart Emmerich's book, where he talks about like we don't have the original autographs, but then we have questions about like what is like the earliest available like text or form of like the Gospels and the New Testament that we have written. So can you just talk a little bit about like Dr. Ehrman's view on this and like what you think of his view? Sure. So in misquoting Jesus, Ehrman defends the the notion that um, it's worth exploring to attempt to try to find the original document, right? Or at least the wording of the original document even, that we can have epistemic access to what the originals said. He totally defends this view. He says, the view that says we can't even access the original language is radical and should be dismissed. That's what he says in his book. And then uh, in my series, as I was um, reading and I was listening to debates that he did, there was a debate he did with Dan Wallace. This would have been seven years after the book came out, uh, depending upon when it was. It could have been early 2013, so so maybe, yeah, eight years after the book came out. He takes a different position. He says he changes his mind and that now we can't speak meaningfully anymore about the original. Now, I'm putting this in quotes because it's very technical. He defends instead what he calls the earliest available form of the text. And he gives a number of reasons for why he now embraces this position. And I'll give just one. This is the example I, I gave in uh, the video series. Second Corinthians, uh, the book, could be an amalgamation, a collection of multiple letters of Paul. It could be two letters that were put together. It could be as most as five letters that come together. And if that's the case, then we can't speak meaningfully of the original, right? There is no original 2 Corinthians written by Paul. Well, as I argued in my video series, and this is where this is one of the points where I disagreed with Ehrman within this series, uh, it's that, well, there is an original 2 Corinthians that was canonized. There was some scribe, let's grant that it's two letters that were put to, edited together. There's some scribe that put together those two letters and voila, there is 2 Corinthians. That's the original, right? Mm -hmm. So I still think that we can have access to the originals. 
And I think his shift on his view is highly technical. And frankly, I don't think it leads to a substantial difference, uh, you know, a meaningful difference. So if he just wants to change the semantics of it, okay. But I, I really don't think there's a meaningful difference there. And I, I'd love to, I haven't had a chance to talk with him, but I'd love to get his feedback and maybe see what he thinks of my response to his, uh, his point in that debate. So that's, you know, when we talk about the original and the earliest available form, uh, that's what he talks about. He shifts his view. And I think it's more a point of technicality than anything that we should really be worried about. Mm. So another one of the things that gets talked about in like this, like conversation about Bart Ehrman is like his early theology. So if you like ever heard about like his deconversion, he talks about being in grad school and trying to resolve like a supposed contradiction in the Bible. Yeah. He, he does this elaborate attempt and his professor just says like, Hey Bart, like what if like Mark just made a mistake? Um, and this is at least according to him, like how his like faith starts to like unravel. So yeah. could you just talk a little bit about like what his early theology was and like, like, is it Aaron? Like how should we like kind of like look at it? Yeah. So he went to Moody Bible Institute, you know, and this is some, uh, if I'm remembering my years, this is some 40 years ago. And so Moody was even more conservative, uh, you know, than it is today, I would argue. And so back then, just think very rigid fundamentalist views. And uh, uh, so that's sort of where he comes from. You know, he didn't grow up a Christian. Uh, he, he, he became a Christian and was Episcopalian, um, which, you know, if he became a Christian, boy, I would avoid that denomination. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but as he learns more about textual criticism, he sees that the Bible is very much a human book. Now, as I stated in, in my introduction, uh, his views are a collection of philosophy, theology, and textual criticism, right? Sort of these three fields. And Ehrman frequently says that uh, it wasn't textual criticism, but the problem of evil that led him to leave the Christian faith. And so um, while he in misquoting Jesus doesn't really talk about it all that much. Uh, you can see some views, some doctrinal views of the text coming forward. So you see his theology a little bit. And so uh, in the introduction, he does sort of defend a, uh, or describe that his view was uh, included verbal plenary preservation, which is the notion that if God really did inspire the originals, well, surely he would have also inspired the process through uh, which this text would continue throughout the generations. Now, you know, Zach, maybe you've taken some theology courses. This, this view is not a view that evangelicals defend. You see this in, for example, King, King James only circles and some other smaller Christian sects of society, uh, of Christendom this sense that God would also preserve the text. So he sort of has this jump and he doesn't really defend that jump in the introduction of the book. And uh, so, you know, that's one thing that I sort of say, and I mean, I wouldn't say call him out on because maybe there's an argument that could be made there. It just hasn't been made. And granted, some of his followers on, on the website, you know, also point this out. They're like, yeah, you're right. It doesn't mean there's not an argument. And I said, yeah, you're right. So let's, so, so what is it? <laughs> and so I'm still waiting for this argument to defend preservation. But, but meanwhile, yeah, inspiration is this, um, 
to get to another doctrinal issue, inspiration is a problem for Ehrman. You know, how, how would that work? And mm -hmm. so it is, in some cases, a mystery. We can sort of say, uh, we can argue via negativa. We can sort of say, well, it's not this and it's not that. Uh, but we don't exactly know. I mean, and even the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy has uh, some material on inspiration and basically punts to mystery saying we don't know. We just we recognize this as matter of fact. Uh, so, yeah, that's, again, maybe a longer answer to your question on Ehrman, the early Ehrman's views. Some of his views, I, I think, um, were unwarranted. And I, I'm curious to know, you know, had he held to what I believe would have been a stronger doctrinal foundation, would he have interpreted his what he was learning, not just the knowledge, but perhaps from life experiences um, pertaining to the problem of evil that he may have interpreted differently if he had a stronger doctrinal foundation. So it's an interesting social experiment, experiment in some close possible world. <laughs> It's interesting. I'd be curious then maybe Kurt talk about maybe like where like the disagreements come with Ehrman, because when I'm like listening and thinking about this, I'm like, well, Christians and Bart Ehrman maybe aren't as far apart as like sometimes it's like portrayed as. So where do you think like the big differences are between like someone like you and someone like Bart Ehrman on questions regarding like the New Testament? Like obviously you believe God exists and he doesn't or is agnostic, but like what about like specifically with regards to like the New Testament? Yeah. So like on, on textual criticism, in some ways, there may not be as stark of differences. The manuscript data is the manuscript data, right? Mm -hmm. There's only so much uh, room for interpretation or, or a variant of an, uh, a variety of interpretations that can be had on the manuscript data. Uh, so in that respect, there may not be some differences. You do see some of this later with his interpretations about um, maybe what he thinks scribes changed intentionally or not. Uh, in one of the early lectures, he he basically says, you know, I, I can't know that a scribe did this intentionally. And he says no with this sense of a strong sense of certainty. But, you know, he might say, well, yeah, it's, it's probably the case that a scribe did this because this was his theological view and his bias crept into the text and into the transmission process. And all of a sudden we see it there. So that's, for example, how we get a Trinitarian formula in the text and, and others. But, you know, he also says, uh, you know, the woman caught in adultery is not in the earliest manuscripts. Where did that come from? So you do see, especially in Misquoting Jesus, some of the later chapters, his views on how to interpret that. Of course, in other issues not related to textual criticism, you see a stark difference between Ehrman and, and uh, us, us Christian apologists. You know, he doesn't think that a historian can uh, describe or, or have epistemic access to a miracle claim. He doesn't think we can verify miracles historically. Uh, he, he doesn't think, for example, that Jesus resurrected, right? And he, so there are these stark differences where we say, okay, well, wait a second. Yeah, we definitely, definitely disagree with Ehrman on this. On, on uh, theological development, he holds to um, the Bauer hypothesis, which is the notion that there were these competing orthodoxies out there. And uh, so... I, I would draw a, a distinction between a strong sense and a weak sense. I mean, even if the early church had some small theological differences, yes, so, so do we evangelicals have small disagreements. But the, the point is, is that the core views uh, were the same there. And so, yeah, so I think he holds to this strong sense. You can, you know, his book, Lost Christianities, goes into that. 
so yeah, there's definitely differences to be had here. And the focus of my series was primarily on misquoting Jesus. So the textual criticism stuff. Hmm. That's super helpful. So thanks for diving into that, Kurt. So the last question that I have for you with regards to this interview is just like, what can we learn from Bart Ehrman? Like what are, cause he's a really good scholar from everything. I Like I'm not a New Testament scholar by any means from what I understand, like, like mostly evangelicals and like re respect him as like a good scholar, even as they disagree with him on some of his conclusions. Like what can we learn about like Ehrman and his work that can benefit us as Christians? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's important for us to, to read what non-Christians say about the, you know, about the same mm -hmm. stuff we're reading about the Bible. <clears throat> if we want to reach non-believers, we have to read what the non-believers are reading and misquoting Jesus has sold, you know, it's a New York times bestseller. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's sold millions of copies. So people are obviously reading misquoting Jesus. <laughs> so if, you know, I think sometimes Christians are scared. They're scared to read non-Christian literature because they might be worried. They might have a, a seed in the back of their mind. Well, what if, you know, what if I read this and I'm not going to become a, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. Well, mm. look, we should follow the truth wherever it goes. And if someone has that fear, just know that there are extremely intelligent people who have read this material and have not given up the faith, right? So there are, there are responses, there are answers. There are assumptions we have that Bart does not have. There are, and, and I'm not saying those are bad assumptions, right? There are such things as good assumptions to have. There are positions we hold that we think are intellectually defensible. For example, God exists and he works in the course of human history, right? Uh, so with just those two beliefs, we're going to have different views that flow from that. Ehrman doesn't share that. So he's going to have views that go the other way. And uh, so that's where you can point out some of our differences, even our differences in our methodology. So as you as you read guys like Ehrman, you're going to learn more about what other non-Christians think. And you may get exposed to uh, some what can be some very beneficial things. So you can learn more about the field of, of New Testament studies. When I studied at King's College London, uh, I did my degree in systematic theology there, lived in England for a year. It was a lot of fun. But they are not an evangelical institution, but they have a theology department, right? This is Church of England, you know, uh, and I became exposed to all sorts of views that are abhorrent. I, mm -hmm. I'm talking, I was reading queer interpretations of the woman at the well. Hmm people who are sexualizing uh, conversation between Jesus and this woman. I mean, this stuff is, you know, so far from what a first century Jewish context would call for. So I, I think it's just historically inaccurate, but you just obviously these people's biases. I mean, it's called, you know, queer interpretation for a reason. So I was reading this, I, would re I was reading uh, Gadamer who basically says you can't know what the text means. And uh, so, you know, whatever it is, like read a response uh, sort of philosophy. It really exposed me to these different views because you might find these views creeping into our Christian communities, right? And so we've got a duty to defend against this. Well, we've read the best stuff, right? To be prepared, we've read the best stuff on it. So when a, someone might be positing, oh, well, we can't really know what the text says. Well, wait a second, no, right? We've read and we've been trained, we've thought and, and we've been trained to respond to this material. So that's one that those are some very good reasons for why we should read outside of our own circles uh, so we can be prepared for this this material that's out there.
Mm, that's super helpful. So Kurt, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been such a great interview. Uh, so much to learn and think about here. So I'm super grateful. Is there anything else you want to say with regards to like last thoughts and be sure to share like people can, how people can connect with you and like your video series that you have going on. So, yeah. 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 Thanks. Yeah. I've appreciated. And uh, I, I do see some comments here. I think maybe that have come in um, and I've got a little bit of time. If you do Zach, I can try to uh, address some of those. Sure. We can do a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but before doing that, let me say, if people want to learn more about my work, you can go to veracityhill.com. You can follow Veracity Hill on YouTube. That's where I have this six part series called Misquoting Ehrman. And uh, I've been really grateful because I didn't know what sort of reception this would get. And uh, it's been well received. Um, some people have sort of uh, given me some pushback on it. You know, how, how can you defend Bart Ehrman? Uh, um, but other people have been thankful from Christians and non-Christians. And so, you know, where we can build bridges, we should do so. And where bridges maybe shouldn't be built, we shouldn't. And so I thought this was, you know, this is one spot where we, we can build a bridge. Uh, we've got to, you know, look at our opponents accurately and represent them fairly. So mm. yeah, um, you can sift through the, the questions there. Uh, yeah, that... we'll go through a couple. Yeah, that's great. We'll leave it at that. And then we'll go through a few questions on our way out. So um, Harry asks, like, do you know, like where, when Airman has misquoted Christians, so I don't know if you want to get into this or not, if there's anything you can think of where uh, he may not portray Christianity in the best sense. Yeah. I, I mean, in terms of um, misquoting Christians as a, as a technicality, has he, you know, attributed to people views that they haven't believed? Uh, in my research, I um, and, and granted, it's been limited research. I haven't read all that Ehrman has written. And so, again, this primarily focused on uh, misquoting Jesus. Uh, I didn't I didn't see anywhere where he was saying, well, so-and-so believes this, but really they don't. Um, now, if you can find some example where he does that, sure. I mean, likewise, we should say, well, no, so-and-so doesn't believe that. And here's what they believe. Uh, but Ehrman is is a scholar. He's a sharp guy. He's very intelligent. And uh, he doesn't, um, maybe I could try to be careful about how I say this, but he doesn't have a, a bone to pick. He's not trying to, he's not like some of these internet atheists um, that are trying to do, I don't know, athe uh, atheist apologetics. And like, I, I can tell you some of these YouTubers, I won't even name them. There's one guy who frequently just takes Christians out of context and uses their materials against them. Um, but Ehrman's not like that at all. Uh, so it's, it's certainly a lot different. Definitely. So there's another question here that's talking about, um, like, who cares about inerrancy? Just the New Testament is historical documents. We were talking a little bit like about Bart's view of inerrancy. So do you have anything you want to say with regards to this? Yeah. Yeah. Harry's been our, our uh, commenter here. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, so who cares about inerrancy? Well, I think, I think people should care about inerrancy um, because uh, the scripture, it's a, it's a holy text. We believe it's divinely inspired. And uh, so I think, I think we can reason meaningfully that the text is what God intended it to be, that the authors wrote what God inspired them to write. Uh, so, of course, we might get into a debate as to, uh, with Harry here, as to what constitutes as inerrant and how do we define that term. Uh, I, I'm of the camp that inerrant should not be uh, defined as without error, period, without any nuance. And here's why, because some texts are intended to uh, communicate certain truths, and we might make category errors. So, for example, 
evangelical Old Testament scholars have a discussion about whether Job was a historical person. The book of Job takes place in the wisdom literature section. It always has been. It's always been a part of wisdom literature. And so did Job actually exist? Well, if Job was not a historical person, then there's an error in the text because it said Job existed and had a family and kids, mm -hmm. right? Well, now we're making a category error. We're applying our standards, our expectations of the text onto the text, which the author never intended to be interpreted that way. So that's why I think if we define inerrant as without error, period, right? No further nuance. Uh, I think that's a category error. So that's why I think that def that interpretation of that definition should be rejected in support of a different view. Uh, but Harry certainly says just the New Testament as historical documents. That's the starting basis. We should view the New Testament as historical documents as our starting basis. If they are historical, if they're reliably historical, that's going to lead us to some other positions, right? That they're strongly reliable. And I would argue that they are inerrant. Uh, so uh, you might say, well, they're inspired and inerrant. It depends on those steps that you might take. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think that's a good starting spot for the New Testament documents being historical documents. That's, um, for me, that's one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. It's not because uh, I want them to be nice things we believe, but because, hey, these these accurately convey what really happened back in the first century. This stuff really happened. And that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. So it's not just this belief I hold willy-nilly, but it's a historical fact. And of course, since it's a historical fact, it has meaning and implications for how we live our lives. And I think that's something that a lot of people are like, ah, I just can't do it. And at that point, they've got to look into their own heart and, and see where they're at. Mm. That's super helpful. So that's some of the main questions we had today, Kurt. So thank you so much for your time. I've been so grateful for this conversation and I've learned so much. So thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks, Zach. I appreciate uh, you bringing me on the show. Yeah, definitely. And I encourage everyone, you can check out Kurt's work, the playlist to his series, Misquoting Ermin is linked down below. It's a great listen to on YouTube. Um, lots of short videos and lots of great content there. So thank you everyone for tuning in today to Harry and everyone else. Um, so grateful for you and your time. And if you enjoy our work, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com. But yeah, one last time. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Have a good one and God bless.